The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Now, this episode, we're going to have a slight sort of pause, I guess, during NAB. And so I didn't want to start a new official interview that I was working on, just to split it up. Uh, So this interview is actually one done at uh, EditFest 2010 in New York. And it's Christopher Tellefson, who you might remember he's cut Moneyball, cut Capote. And in this part, the interviewer, which is Bobby Osteen, is talking to him about his early work. So we thought we'd play this for you and then... During NAB, I'll be posting tons of audio clips uh, from interviews I'm doing with various groups. You can also find me on PostChat. It's hashtag PostChat. I'll be out there with Tej Babra at Tej Babra and Jesse Averna at Droid, D-R-0-I-D. Other than that, what I'll do is I'll put out those audio clips during NAB, and then after NAB, I'll play the rest of this interview or a part of it and then we can get back to our interview uh, series that we've been doing. So in the meantime, enjoy Bobby Osteen's interview with Chris Teffelson. I'm very excited to be um, doing this panel with Chris Teffelson today. Um, he's really a remarkable talent, and his, the range of, and diversity of his work will be evident to you today. He um, has always tried to find contrast and challenge in all that he's done. And uh, he's worked on films that involve what are wildly experimental, are, are very conventionally narrative films, um, screwball comedies, gentle atmospheric comedies, drama, um, documentary-like films, um, and... Um, there's just an incredible diversity of work and with always in mind a sensitivity to both the performance and the material always um, wanting to work with directors that have a clear vision and a unique point of view among them Milos Forman, Robert Benton, M. Night Shyamalan, um, Wayne Wang and um, has done films with directors who were doing their feature feature film um, for the first time, um, which with Stillman, Bennett Miller, and also uh, the brilliant uh, photographer Larry Clark. We're going to show a lot of clips today, so I want to quickly introduce um, Chris as, as quickly as, as uh, sort of capsulate as much as I can and then start talking about his work. Um, so Chris's path to success was very unusual, and I think it also informed his work because he, although he was obsessed with film as a child and a teenager, immersing himself in every conceivable era and genre, um, 
New Wave films, Fellini, Truffaut, um, Kubrick, and the great classics, um, George Stevens, and Billy Wilder, and, and basically you said at one point all the films that were, were um, condemned by the Catholic Legion of Decency, yeah, like Midnight Cowboy. My memo was to see them all. <laughs> Rosemary's Baby. Right. And so he was obsessed with film and, and very much a film aficionado as a child and a young adult, and then went on to go for his MFA at C Cooper Union, which was a very unusual path for an editor, but, but clearly um, made him very added to his courage and his, his sense of invention and his ability to interpret it in a wild range of material. And so I wanted to talk to you, Chris, about your experience as a third-year student at Cooper Union when you had Robert Breer as your professor teacher who was an experimental filmmaker and painter. And painter and animator, yeah. Yes, and you took an experimental film class with him. Yeah, and, and I, had never, I had never touched film before that, and I, I really didn't have any, um, any frame of reference or any kind of example, so it, it just didn't seem like something that it didn't even occur to me. I always, I was, I always was an art major. Like from very young, I drew a lot and painted and did, did things. So I was always that was my trajectory. But when I took this class and I started making collage films, which I'd, I'd set a bolex in front of a television, I'd file through the um, TV guide and find shots from from particular films that I loved, like uh, this Douglas Sirk film, Written on the Wind. I used pieces of that. I was also inspired by um, a thing of Joseph, the artist Joseph Cornell had done this treatise on. Um, like this, like sort of a crazy treatise on Hedy Lamarr, and there was this movie that she was in with Jimmy Stewart, and I used pieces of that with the combined with science programs and Spanish soap operas. I was I just started screwing around with with um, with shots and putting things together, and I just got very excited by just what what happens when you put two images together and what that creates, the frisson and the excitement that, you know, that comes of that and the new meaning that happens when two images collide. And uh, it was, uh, it, it just occurred to me that, you know, I could, I, I could do this, you know, this. And so I pursued very, very aggressively pursued over the course, it took me like seven years to do my first feature, but um, I just kept at it till until something hit, and I did, I did a short, and I did this other film before Metropolitan, but then Metropolitan hit, hit you know, it became something that, that I could really move on from. And you did, uh, you recut a terrible Jackie Mason <laughs> film <laughs> under the supervision of Ralph Rosenblum, who yes. was also an inspiration to you. A big inspiration, because I loved his work as an editor on um, uh, the producers and all the Woody Allen films up to, um, up to Interiors was his last film. He did every single one before that, and he was very inspiring. So it was really wonderful to, to have that opportunity to work with Ralph, who then wanted, he was, he was directing at that time, and uh, <laughs> He was going to do a, do a film, and he had called me. To, he was interested in me, me doing it, and so three weeks lapsed, and I was like, maybe I should call Ralph. Maybe I should call Ralph. So I said, oh, I'm going to call him and see what's up. So I call call Ralph. And I said, well, uh, Ralph, what's going on? He says, Oh, oh that eh, that's not going to happen. Well, kid, that's showbiz. Click. <laughs> <laughs> that was my uh, tough love. <laughs> but you also initiation into like just uh, there's going to be a lot of. A lot of disappointment. But he also, yeah, but he also, I, I, had, I also had um, a, a great thing in that w that 
experience of being uh, involved with Ralph, he was also doing another film at the time, parallel to it, that uh, the editor was Sonia Polanski, a wonderful editor who did Mate Juan and Baby It's You for John yeah. Sayles, and was, um, was the, the first assistant on Raging Bull, in which she said she went from youth to middle age. And she also worked on Woodstock with Thelma, and I, that's how I got an introduction into, you know, and met the, who, the people that were going to be assisting Thelma on The Color of Money. I just went, I, like, I'll, so I'll that sweep was the floor, I'll do anything. And so I got you an were the apprentice, job. right, yes. on, on Color of Money. He was also worked as a curator for Martin Scorsese's um, film archive and found the negative for Eraserhead. Uh, well, I One got among through other another archivist. They contacted. They said, you know, they didn't know where it was, and I found it in a in a lab on Forty Fifth Street. It was in lots of boxes and the thing. And I, I didn't save the message from David Lynch, but it was kind of funny. She said, "That is so cool." <laughs> it is cool. <laughs> um, but you also said that Thelma. That was an inspirational moment for you to work in the cutting room with her. What did oh, you What well, did you Thelma, get from that experience? Uh, well, you know, you get to really see, you know the inner workings of you know going the distance all the time all yeah. the time there's never you know there's you don't stop until until it's there until it's, or until right, it's yeah. you know glowing and, focus and becomes and something ethic. else and yeah that, that's like you you work till you drop basically yeah. is the work ethic. yeah so um we're g we have so many clips so many wonderful clips to show so we're going to get into it now and talk about Metropolitan, which was the first feature film for Chris as well as Whit Stillman. Um, he had done some, he was involved in distribution, but he had never yeah, it's actually... Good. It's Spanish films. He was involved in distributing Spanish films in the United States. And this was an interesting, it was um, low budget about high budget people, <laughs> about um, debutantes and uh, this sort of cotillion world on a very low budget, $235,000 with, with a 35 below up. Yeah, and a, and a 16 millimeter, it super, was super 16. 16 yeah. and, um, it's beautifully shot by John Thomas. He really utilized the super 16 and really lit it. It was sort of ghetto shooting, up. just showing up in buildings yeah. where they, you know, fancy <laughs> apartments and yeah. lobbies. And There's a lot of cheating and running around and catching images. And the cabs that stopped were like just like random cabs that stopped. Yeah. They didn't hire them. But he also, you know, it's a, it, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this film, but it's a um, very heavy dialogue film. It's, it's, it was a 135, 40-page script. Yeah, it's a long script. First cut was two hours and 45 minutes. And he was very attached to his words. So this was an interesting experience for you to tell him we have to now shape it. And yeah, uh, so and then he was sitting there in the very beginning and saying, oh, that, we can't do that. I'd make a suggestion of some cut, that's, but that's grammatically incorrect. We, we can't <laughs> do that. It's impossible. So I said, well, look, uh, let's, let's sit down. We need to screen it. We need to show it to people and get a sense of how it's playing. So after, you know, having like 10 people sit around a Steenbeck and watch a two hour and 40 minute rough cut, <laughs> he, <laughs> was, he, <laughs> he, he, he was a con convert at that point. So we just started shaping it. And like, there was one interesting scene in the beginning that it's not in the clip, but um, he, um, he wanted this woman for the way she looked and she was completely, she was like, like, um, but from the Astor Foundation, she was this wealthy woman, but there was, she was very interesting looking. She was a lovely person too, Linda, Linda Gillies was her name. And she was like terrified and she, could, she played the mother in a certain scene and it was a long written scene and she, she was screwing up the lines left and right and I, I had a cut to script of it that you know, it, was, it was just so 
tortured because they, I just had to work around her, her difficulties, but eventually it, it reduced down to like three shots and it works beautifully and you, know, you get just the sense of her as a supportive mother. But it was also interesting, you said that the way he shot it was there, there was some, wa some walk and talk parts and then there were set pieces and you really wanted to preserve, and it's going to reveal itself in this clip. Sort of. Chris really wanted to preserve the tone and the essence and the humor and the charm of it without, you were able to have the luxury to do that because you could sort of um, rely on the other, you, you know, you, w you let it play out. You, you could let those scenes yes, play out. Yes, and there, there was certain, like certain scenes were, were only covered in walk talks and then there were some scenes that were completely, were, were extremely covered, large, you know, dialogue scenes with a group of people. And then there were certain scenes that were not, that were, were, were somewhat covered, but then stylistically it made sense to stay in one shot for certain scenes just to, to give it a certain kind of uh, elegance and flow. So do you, would you like to sure. set up this clip? Sure. Okay. Um, um, this is um, a, a clip of at a cotillion ball that um, they're, they're having a discussion about uh, Louis Bunuel. And it's about 30 minutes into, 29 minutes into the film. Yeah. Sense of the, the, the tone, the tone of the movie, it's very, it was like when I read that script, it was like, you know, it was just something very special. It was like it had an, a, an attitude that was new, that was different. And also it was, it, I think the popularity of it played into like the kind of late 80s, early 90s kind of plutography, you know, that yeah. people were interested in like in this kind of like rarefied group. And I remember screenings, which was so interesting. There would be waves of laughter and I knew they weren't getting it. They wanted to. <laughs> but you also said some of the the um, Chris has had a lot of experience on films where he had to. Um, I'm stealing a word of his. Massage the performances of non-actors and actors, um, non-professionals and professionals. And um, in this case, none of these actors they had some theater experience. Some of them, oh, but none of them were very few. Very you know, like few. I'd say Taylor, the the guy with the glasses. Taylor was the probably the most experienced actor in the group. And, and Chris Chris Eigeman was a was a budding actor, and he was like, it was a really stellar performance from Chris. I mean, Chris was like. Really, something, and the young woman who played Audrey was quite lovely, and she had a little bit of experience. But some of the others were students. That, and like and you said schools. they didn't get a lot oh, of the they references. Get, they didn't get the reference. <laughs> they didn't know who overall Harriman was or like Thorstein Veblen, like the, the kind of like like uh, social theorists that were thrown around. They it was like way over their head. And then and fine. then you said that. Um, when Whit Stillman came into the cutting room, he had two De Edward Dimitrik's book <laughs> and Carol Rice's book. Yeah, and like he was I like, under I'm an own. editor now. And well, he was humbled a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he hadn't was, gotten to the funny. crossing the line part, he, he said. He was a quick learner, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a quick learner. But that was, um, just to, now, these, these, the choice of clips is, it's, this is not accidental. There really is, it, it shows the re diversity of, of Chris's work because the next film, Kids, is, quite a different project. Um, yeah. Larry Clark was an well, is Larry, incredible the photographer. Larry's like an amazing photographer, very important photographer uh, in terms of like very influential. And Larry's pictures, like if you're familiar with his books like Tulsa and Teenage Lust and um, A Perfect Childhood, he's, he's really very much, I always thought of him as a photographer, as participant, as opposed to observer. And he doesn't, he doesn't have that kind of um, distance of an observer. He's, when he's shooting something really, really 
harsh, he's a part of it in many ways. And that was, and in reading the script of, of Kids, which was written by Harmony Corrine, uh, I was very excited because I knew this was going to be uncompromisingly out there and going to be something special and different. Yeah. And uh, again, mentioned. with non-professional actors. Oh, there was well. Interestingly, there was one. The Chloe. This also int he he discovered Chloe Sevigny and um, Rosario Dawson on this. Uh, yeah. Chloe was actually going to play a smaller role, but the girl that he was the one actress. I forgot her name, but she did. So she was in some Adam McGoyan films at the time. This was like in 1994, and when he put her in with a group of non-actors who were all these like, skateboard kids who were kind of natural performers, but they weren't actors. They she just stood out like a sore thumb. So he had to like b politely ask her to that you know tell her that it wasn't going to work out, and he bumped up Chloe from a very small role into the, the role of Jenny, mm -hmm. and Rosario was the, uh, during a, a um, during a location hunt on the east side, he saw this striking 15-year-old on a um, fire escape and said, do you want to be in a movie? They're both incredible. Yeah, they're, I mean. great. they're great. But, but so this sort of long lens packed yeah, imagery of Larry Clark, I mean, you really captured it in the editing. And you, uh, maybe we'll talk about it after the clip okay. about the smash cutting. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is, um, do you want to set up? Uh, this is uh, hanging out in um, Washington Square Park. It's the, the the skate kids are there, and they're just like they're they're just out of control by nature. And this is just something that happens. It's a fight. Um, you talked about the influence of John Cassavetes' films, particularly on the uh, killing of the Chinese book. He was a big. Um, inspiration for the film in terms of, I, well, one thing I was always looking for in, in this movie were like ways of getting the cuts to really kind of clash and smash together, not, not, not have a too continuous a feel. And the fight scene gives, gives a lot of that. There's a lot of other examples within it, but that was, you know, in, indirectly inspired by um, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, another film that, that inspired the, the shape of the movie. It's a 24-hour film, and I, w I was familiar with, and Larry and I talked about um, the film Mikey and Nikki by um, Elaine May, which is a film that took like 10 years to actually get mm -hmm. out, but it's a wonderful, wonderful film, and it yeah. really has that sense of time, that sense of a feel of like you feel like you've been through 24 hours, and that was something we strove for. Yeah. Um, and and uh, the experience of working with Larry Clark, was he very involved in the editing process, or? Not a, Not a lot. No, it was more he like he he was, uh, he was more. Um, he would like, I would set him up, sort of separately, and he'd kind of like, go through, through footage and like mark moments. Like he was very much, and he would like you know to like, but he but then if I changed that, it was fine. You know, like as long as it did did something that was going to the right direction. But he would, he was, he'd like to find those odd like a cinematic moments that kind of like give it a give it a kind of an unconventional shape right Th which makes sense given his work yeah yeah, yeah. I mean that's, yeah. that's that's Larry so that was the panel and again remember all during NAB I'll be posting audio clips that I'm doing interviews with um, you'll also hear little snippets uh, throughout the site AOTG.com is going to have tons of updates uh, I'm thinking we're probably going to have about 100 to 150 a day 
of uh, pieces of news coming in. So make sure to get our app so you can stay up on that. You can go to iTunes or you can go to the Android store. Or you can get onto our email list. So if you go to AOTG.com and choose tools, you can choose the email list. And that can keep you up to date three times a day. And uh, that way you don't get bombarded with information. But in the meantime, thanks to uh, the ACE and Jenny McCormick for allowing me to post this. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.